All right, so we were building off of last week, and it was good to have David Wooten here with us. And uh, he asked if I agree with his assessment of Mark, and I do. There is two major parts in Mark. The second half is uh, really focusing on discipleship and what it means to follow Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at some practical concerns for purity within the body and peace within the body. And so we're going to look at putting sin to death. And that preservation of the salt in the believer that leads to peace within the body. And uh, these things are connected. So, because of some things I want to bring your attention to in the text, I'm going to jump right in. And uh, I'm going to read. And then I want to look at some observations. Because if you've read through this ahead of time, which I encourage you to do, you probably noticed a few things about the text. So I'm going to pick up in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter life crippled than have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better you enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. So, right away, quite a few observations. Uh, If you're in our Wednesday night Bible study or if you've ever sat through Uh, a study with me and you want to know what the passage is talking about, I will tell you to look for repeated words. In this text, you will will have a field day because almost every word in here is is repeated. Um, And I was thinking this this week that this would be a great exercise for for parents. A good thing to do with your kids, get them to to connect words. Uh, Say, okay, where do you see this this word again? You could print this passage out and color code it and uh, it would be beautiful. So I'll give you a little picture into what I do in my sermon prep, there's going to be a, a slide up there. So this is what I would normally do. This is Lagos, if you're wondering. I can do all kinds of cool designs. I really like the uh, fire text. So wherever there was fire, I used the uh, fire text. But going through here, um, so going through to try to figure out how I want to focus on this text and where I see parallels, there's many parallels. So I will code each, uh, color code each uh, parallel idea or, or, or repeated words. This is a great exercise, and parents, is never too early to start talking about hell and sin with your, your children. Um, it's true. Uh, if you want to do this in a practical way, uh, I forgot to bring Cherise, but ESV puts out these, these little, um, does anyone have one? The, the little um, gospel, George has one. So you just raise it up, George. So like, they're, they're a, a few dollars, it's the, uh, Christy's got one. Uh, it's they have them for every book of the Bible, and it's the text on one side and notes on the other, and it will help for you, for you visual people to draw the parallels. And uh, so we're going to look at a lot of those this morning. You can bring that down. Um, and uh, yeah, you don't have to leave that up there anymore. Thanks, Jake. The other thing, if you're an astute reader, you recognize that, hey, wait a second, I'm not the best mathematician out there, but there might be a couple numbers missing. Uh, so the very quick, without getting too, too into this, is... Uh, the, uh, some of the newer manuscripts or, or um, have 
verse 44 and verse 46 are a repetition of verse 48. So most likely, a la- so if you're reading, there's a couple translations, NASB and, and, and New King James will have those. They're using later manuscripts, uh, probably a scribal edition. The scribes loved the parallel so much that they wanted to add it uh, after each phrase. But the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include it. That's why it's there. Uh, and there's many, many pages written on that. That's as much as I'm going to give you. The other thing you're going to notice as you look through, there's a pattern in Jesus' preaching. It appears four times. And he kind of works through this logical progression. We see a cause and a result. Someone or something is causing someone else to sin or to stumble. And we're going to get into the meaning of the word in a moment. Uh, Then there's an alternative. Instead of the causing to sin, it would be better if and the alternative is much worse than what actually happens in our, in our minds. But we're going to see why Jesus uses such strong language here. The first, the first one we're going to deal with at length uh, because it's dealing with tempting others. And we're going to look at that pattern. And then the next three are, are parallel to one another. Dealing with your own eyes, your own feet, your own hands. And Jesus gets more personal when he digs into us because he tells us what's at stake. Life and death. Eternal life. Or hell. And he also adds a remedy. What would be better than hell is to cut off your hand. One of the strongest statements that Jesus makes, and uh, we're going to get into that more. And this probably was a common teaching of Jesus. Because Mark, or excuse me, Matthew brings it up in the Sermon on the Mount and in chapter 18. And so I want to begin in Matthew 18 because. Recording Jesus' words, he, he kind of condenses what Mark says, and it gives us the, the progression from last week to this week. So we connect last week to this week with Matthew 18. And hopefully you'll see why Jesus, as we get into our text, why Jesus uses the language he does. Matthew 18, I'm going to read 1 through 7, and I want you to see the connection between last week and this week. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child. Now as we look at the little children in our text, this will help us understand which, what does he mean by such child? The same one he just referred to. Whenever someone receives one such child in my name, one who humbles himself, that one is great in the kingdom of heaven. So someone who believes in Christ and humbles themselves before Christ, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these, same thing, one, who's, one who believes in me and humbles himself to me, if you cause that one, one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. As usual, the disciples are thinking about themselves and Jesus thinks about his own. Stop thinking about yourselves. I want you to, I want you to be very sober-minded at this moment. I want to show you my concern and my love for my own. The purity of my children protect them and guard them. And then he goes on with this admonition. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. Jesus promises it. But 
Woe to the one by whom temptations come. That's what we'll be dealing with this morning. Woe to the one by whom temptations come. Temptations are going to come. They're expected to come from the world, but if they come from other believers, we've got a real problem. And you need to be on guard for this. And this is what we're going to be dealing with this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we will walk through our text. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as disciples, learners, to sit at your feet, to hear your word. Let it accomplish its purpose in us. Let it examine us. Let us be laid bare before you any sins that we are holding on to. Anyone here who is not following you, who does not know you, Lord, may their sins be a bitter taste in their mouth. May they be miserable and hate themselves that they may die and turn to you. Those of us who have died to ourselves and continue to live for ourselves, may we put our sins and our flesh to death that you may be glorified. May this be a text of challenge, but also encouragement if we are indeed children of God. May we act like good and faithful children who want to please our Father in heaven because He has shown His good pleasure toward us. We pray in the Son's name. Amen. So as we look at this text, I want to ask a question. And the first obvious question when he's talking about putting a millstone around your neck and cutting off your hands and, cut and gouging out your eyes, is Jesus being serious? Absolutely. Is Jesus being literal? Not necessarily. But, if need be. And so that's what I, I want to address this morning. Jesus uses hyperbole, so uh, intentional exaggeration to prove a point. He is very serious about what he's talking about, and he uses strong language so that you pay attention. Does every person who sins need to cut off their hand in their, in their foot? No. But if it stops you from sinning, do it. It's better, and we're going to see why. We're going to walk through each one of these. But he begins on the outside, what we may do to others, and then he gets a little closer to home. So verse 42, again, we're continuing off of verse 41. So I want to start reading in verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. This is not just good deeds for the sake of good deeds. This is, I am in Christ, you are in Christ, we are family. I do this for you because of Christ. Will by no means lose his reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones, the same ones who are in Christ in the previous verse. These little ones. Remember last week, Jesus picks up a little boy in his arms. And he gives them a visual of this is the Father's love for his children. This is my love for my own. Protect them. Guard them like I am guarding this child right now. Give them water if they are thirsty. Give them food if they are hungry. Teach them so they may learn. But don't you dare tempt them. Don't you dare corrupt them. 
Not just because they are children, but more importantly, because they believe in me. Jesus takes this very personal. Because what you do to one of his own, you do to him. This is why what he says is so strong here. One of these little ones who believe in me. Because Jesus doesn't just see them as kids or even immature believers or even grown-up believers because no matter how grown we think we are, we are still a little child that Jesus picks up in his arms and no one can snatch us out of his hand. No matter how grown we think we are, we are still adopted to the Father's table. We are still given an inheritance in Christ. And he loves us enough to send his son to lay down his life for us. Don't you dare corrupt them. This is why Jesus is so protective. Parents, how protective would you be of one of your children's friends who leads them into sin? Jesus is warning his disciples, you will be ambassadors for me, but you're also going to be examples. Be very careful what you do around other believers. That's why it seems so harsh, because you are corrupting the very body and family of Christ. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. Now we've looked at this verb before for, for causes, scandalizo, it sounds cool. Uh, but it's the, the bait stick within a snare trap. So in a snare trap, you would put a little bit of bait or you would rub food on it so that an animal comes and licks it and is, and is caught. So this is something intentional that you do, setting a trap for someone else. You are causing someone else to, to stumble. This is, this is premeditated corruption. And this is inexcusable. You're setting a trap for another believer. If you do that, it is better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck. Many of you have not ground grain, and I haven't either. Uh, a millstone in the, in, the, in the grain grinding process it is a very big stone. There, there were two stones, two round stones on top of one another. This is literally a donkey's stone. And so it's the big stone that was on top with a hole in the middle. You would drop grain into it, and the donkey is tied to it. As the donkey walks in a circle, the grain is separated from the husk, and it is ground into a fine flour so you can make bread out of it. Hour after hour, day after day, a strong, stubborn donkey has to pull this big stone because it is too big for any man to pull. So when Jesus says it is better if you take this great millstone and wrap it around someone's neck, it's got a hole in it, just the perfect size for your head. If you're going to cause one of my children to sin, stick that on your head and jump in the sea. That's what Jesus is saying. And again, every time we've seen sea, it's not a positive thing. This is before snorkeling and, and aquariums. This is dark and, and foreboding and mysterious. This is where the dead are. This is not a good thing to go jump in the sea. Jesus is using strong language to bring this point home. I care so much for my body. That'd be better if you died. That's better? Absolutely. It'd be better if you died than you lead another believer into sin. Does our heart break for those who corrupt 
the body of Christ. For those who lead the little ones into sin. It should. But if we're honest, often our flesh is like, well, that's kind of harsh, Jesus. Why would you throw someone out? Because he cares for you that much. And there is a great weight, all puns intended, put on believers to guard and protect the body. We don't get legalistic about sins and things like that to make ourselves feel righteous. We are concerned with sins within the body because we want his bride to be pure and spotless. We want to be righteous for our groom. And if your actions or encouragement causes someone to sin, there is great consequences for that. So guard against it. I'm not saying here that believers can be cast into the sea, but Jesus is showing us how serious this is. Now the obvious ones, if you encourage someone else to lie or steal or commit adultery, that should go without saying. Hopefully we don't have to have that conversation. If you have questions about that stuff, let's, let's talk. But I want to talk about the ones that are a little more subtle. Because Paul uses all of this same language in Romans 14. Turn to Romans 14. Paul brings the standard to the same height, but uses clear language so we can understand. Here's the less obvious ones. Romans 14, pick him in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Same idea here, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is intentional action. I know... And I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. I have freedom in Christ. I have a clear conscience to live freely before Christ. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Paul is getting down to even in the matter of conscience. I will guard my brother and not provide a stumbling block for them. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. There's a lot of debates then about food sacrifice to, to idols and clean and unclean foods. Paul is telling the more mature believers, he starts this chapter by addressing the mature in light of the, the, the weak and immature. So do not let your, what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Be above reproach. Don't flaunt what you can do in Christ to the the minimizing of your brother and sister. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. These things are secondary. They're way down the list. But of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want you to see in this text, Paul uses peace three times. As we get to our text where Jesus ends with peace, it may seem like a disconnected idea, but Paul and Jesus are on the same page here. Peace within the body is freedom from sin. And purity within the body. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. This is what is most important within the body. Peace and unity and building one another up. Do not, for the sake of food or any other freedom, Paul's going to get there in a second, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone who makes another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that 
causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Here's an important principle here. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is dealing with the mature and immature within the body. And we do have freedom in Christ. But far too many people use their freedom in Christ to shame others and to create stumbling blocks for others. I have seen this more times than I would like to count. Yes, I have freedom in Christ. And yes, we have freedom. Just like Paul says, drink wine, drink alcohol or cigars or any other thing that we can enjoy. But if it comes between this and the flourishing of my brother or sister, I will put it away in a heartbeat. Because that is the greater concern. Because in their eyes, if it is sin, if, they, if in their immaturity it is sin, then the work of Christ in them is more important than me showing how mature and free I am. We also have to be careful on the other side because many people use their freedom in Christ to excuse sin within themselves. We do not take our freedom in Christ as license to cause others to sin or to cause ourselves to sin. This is where we get personal and transition from 42 to 43. Because the admonition in 42 is don't corrupt the body of Christ. The admonition in 43 and on is don't let your body corrupt you. Jesus hits home here, picking up in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell and to the unquenchable fire. So I'm going to break down some of these, these things here. Uh, and we're going to look at them in, in a group since they are parallel. First, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cutting off. Put to death. Throw it away. Get rid of it, lest you be thrown away. Cut it off. Anything that might cause you to sin, get rid of it. Now, do you start by cutting off your hand? Hopefully, there's a few steps before that. But this practice is not unknown in the ancient world. This is how men could serve in the court of the queen. Something would have to be cut off so they would not sin. I was reminded of this this week when I was talking to my neighbor who was going to get his dog fixed. And he didn't realize what was involved in getting his dog fixed uh, so his dog wouldn't sin with the neighbor's dog. Um, (laughs) And I won't tell you what he said because I don't want to create a stumbling block for you, but it was hilarious. Um, (laughs) And he had this just epiphany on what exactly went down when when uh, he came back he noticed something was was missing and he wasn't prepared for that (laughs) Um, but that's the general idea if something would cause you to sin it is better to cut it off so think about this in the christian life like like a field surgeon in battle if your leg is, is blown off and it's between gangrene that will kill all of you or to amputate your leg you cut it off And you do it quickly because it will spread quickly. You don't wait too long. It is better to destroy the cancer and get rid of it. Cut it off than to let it grow and fester. 
because any unchecked sins, they're going to bring friends along pretty quickly. And if you don't cut them off, they will keep inviting others to the party. This is the, the theological term mortification. To put to death. You have been raised with Christ. If you have new life in Christ, you have died with Him. But there is a daily process of putting sin to death. John Owen is famous for saying, if you don't put sin to death, if you don't kill it, it will kill you. And this is a daily walk for the believer. Cut it off. Your hand, your eye, your foot, it does not matter. Cut it off. Because Jesus said, woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Don't you dare tempt someone else. But also don't you dare let your body tempt you. Don't you dare let your hand or your eye or your foot cause you to stumble. Whether it's images or it's places or it's practices, cut them off. Why? Verse 43, it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell and the unquenchable fire. It is better, it's always better to go to life. And so here, it is better to go to life. Life. And just in case you missed it, and the third one, he says, it is better to enter the kingdom. He's saying that the kingdom of God is eternal life. It is everlasting life. This is the goal. This is most important. At the expense of your eye, your hand, your foot, it doesn't matter. This is where you want to go. And far often we are too short-sighted. We don't realize that that is the ultimate prize. And we will turn a blind eye figuratively and literally to our own sin. And sin, sin brings pleasures for a moment. It does, but it is only a moment. But Jesus is my kingdom. My eternal kingdom. It is life and it is life everlasting. This is the man who, when he finds that great pearl, will sell everything so that he might gain it. And we ought to live like that, that I am willing to cut off anything and everything if it causes me to sin. Then he mentions a place here. I think the description here is really helpful. You cut it off, or it is better you to enter life crippled than to go with two hands and go into hell. The word here in Greek is literally, it's, it's, it's Gehenna. But we translate it hell because we don't know what Gehenna is. So Gehenna is the, um, the uh, Hellenized or a Greek version of the Hebrew word for the Hinnom Valley. It is this, this ravine that went outside of the Temple Mount. And that's where they threw all their garbage and that's where they burned all their garbage. But even worse, this is where all the wicked kings of Israel would sacrifice their children to Molech by fire. Now Josiah did away with that practice, but... This remained a burning trash heap to that day. So when they went to Jerusalem, they smelled the, the, the burning garbage. And they knew the stories of their ancestors being sacrificed to these false gods by fire. Keep that picture in your mind later on. Jesus says it'd be better to cut off your hand than to go into Gehenna, the burning garbage heap of the world. And this is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the Hinnom Valley. The Jews knew the significance of this. When Jesus says Gehenna, he means hell. He uses the, the, the most extreme place that they can think of and puts a word to it and puts an idea to it. Using this hyperbole gives its closest earthly parallel. So now that you get all that, Now we're going to address hands, 
feet, and eyes. I want you to get the weight of it first. This is all-encompassing. What we do, where we go, and what we see. He doesn't have to mention every body part. This, this, this covers it. Think how vital they are to us. We don't think about how vital our hands, our feet, or our eyes are. But if they would cause you to sin, to that extent, get rid of them. Because giving into temptation involves seeing what you want. It involves walking toward it. And it involves grabbing it and picking it up. In each step along the way, you had an opportunity to turn. When you saw it, you could have turned. When you walked toward it, you could have turned. Before you picked it up, you could have turned. But they all work in concert with one another. And if they're going to contribute to it, cut them off. I'm going to give you a couple examples of this in Scripture. So Job got this. If you turn to Job, and if you don't know where Job is, the middle of your Bible is Psalms. Uh, the book before that is Job. Job 31. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but you could. This entire chapter is a great guard against sin. But I love Job's language here because he brings all of these things together. Job 31. First and foremost, as a man, guys, this is important. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why? How then could I gaze on a virgin? Just, this is real. You think you, you're, you're the first one to struggle with this? Job was the first book written in the Bible. We don't know how old the book is. But as long as there have been books written and men talking, there has been this concern. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? But he understands the implications. It's not just legalistic. What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous. He knows there's consequences. And disaster for the workers of iniquity. Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? Even to down to his feet, he knows that they're in the hand of the Lord. But then he knows his feet could also lead him to sin. If I have walked in with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in just balance and let God know my integrity. He knows his mouth, or excuse me, his eyes and his feet could lead him to sin, but he wants to repent before God. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot is stuck to my hands, if I have done anything and there is one grain of wickedness, wickedness left on my hand, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows from me be rooted out. Basically, he's saying, if I refuse to repent of one sin, give everything I have to someone else, I don't deserve it. Let me sow and let them eat. I don't deserve it if I still cling to sin before a holy God. Job got this. Paul gets this. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Paul, this is Paul speaking about his life in ministry. 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27. Every athlete, this is how Paul views ministry. In the life of a Christian, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. To be a good athlete, you've got to be self-controlled. To be a good Christian, you've got to be self-controlled. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. What he's saying is, if you're going to labor as a Christian, do it for the right reasons. Because we do it for something that is imperishable, that eternal life, that crown that never passes away. Don't do it for temporary gain. 
And what does he do to guard himself? So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, which is just a funny picture. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Paul knows, even the Apostle Paul, I must be an athlete in training every day that my body might not cause me to sin, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Yes, there's a high, high calling on preaching the word in ministry. But Paul knows the bar is set high for him as well in his personal life. I will not substitute my own holiness and my own pursuit of being obedient to the Lord for others. I need to guard both of these. So what do we see here in this section 43 through 48? Jesus walks through this gruesome process, but it needs to be gruesome because Jesus is not playing around when it comes to sin and neither should we. The principle applies, even if it doesn't apply literally. Think about if we had to do this literally. Every time your eye caused you to sin, every time your hand caused you to sin or your foot caused you to sin, we would all be blind, breathing stumps. And where do you find a man who has no, high, no eyes, no hands, no feet? Right where you left him. <laughs> Better that than to be thrown in hell, verse 48. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I wanted you to laugh because you might cry in a moment. Better that, no hands, no arms, no eyes, and live in eternal life than be thrown into hell. You can see why the scribes would want to add this verse after 43 and after 45 where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Let me paint a picture here. This is very graphic and very gruesome on purpose. In the fires of Gehenna, where the trash was thrown, the worms and the maggots would eat on the decaying material. And then they would get burned up and the process would repeat again and again and again. Hell is not like that. Jesus is saying, this is Gehenna, but the maggots never get full. The fire never stops burning. It just keeps going on and on and on. The putrid stench of dead material being eaten and decomposed eternally. And the fire rages on. Everything you saw in that valley when you would go to Jerusalem for the fest festivals, but way worse. Unquenchable. There are die consequences to corruption to rebellion, to rejection of Christ, to continuing in sin. Jesus is serious as hell, and we should be too. So we should be very sobered in that moment. And Jesus wants them to be. He wants their attention. But then he, he brings it home. He doesn't end there. So he transitions into kind of a strange sentence. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. What does it mean? I want to break down the, the symbolism between salt and fire, and I want you to see what's at play here. What does salt do? It flavors and it preserves. 
Uh, but with a careful reading of the Old Testament, you see that the, the salt had significance in ceremony and in worship. And I want to bring these on the board because I want to go through them quickly. Uh, there's a scribal note in some of the earliest texts of Mark that reference Leviticus 2.13, which I think is helpful. Leviticus 2.13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. There's an interesting picture that it's being painted here. Your offerings, they are to be flavorful before God, but there is a preserving nature. Your, your covenant is to be marked with salt. There's a significance in worship, also significance to the priest, Numbers 18, 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you. He's speaking to the priests here now. And your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual due is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So Jesus bringing up you are the salt of the earth is not the first time Israel heard this. When he says everyone will be salted with fire, so what does salt have to do with fire? Both are for testing, uh, both are used for refining. But fire has a lot of significance within the sacrificial system as well. The fire purified the sacrifice. How did the fire purify the sacrifice? It burns off everything that is offensive to God. Fire purifies by removing all of the dross, all of the disease, all of anything that would corrupt the sacrifice. And the aroma and the smoke going up before the throne room of God is pleasing to Him. So it is a preserved nature and a purified nature. And this principle is seen in Numbers 31. It's talking about metals, but we, we get the, the principle. Everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean. If you want to be clean, you've got to go through the fire. But there's also a prophecy for this. It'll be on the screen if you want to turn to Malachi 3. Uh, I wanted to go to the one in Zechariah 2, and I just had to flip a coin because they're both great. Um, but the same idea. Malachi 3. We get the coming of coming of the Lord and the final day of the Lord really kind of back to back here. Malachi 3, I want to read the first four verses. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. We know this language from Mark about John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. God himself will come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. This should ring some bells in our Hebrews conversations. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What will he do when he comes? Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? No one can stand in front of him. But what will he do? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He, you got his first coming, now you've got his second coming. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. To be able to worship before God rightly, you must be salted and you must go through the fire. Then, verse 4, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. So when he says, for everyone will be salted with fire, everyone will pass through the fire. Those that are dross and impure will be burned up. Those who are pure will come out of the other side clean. 
that salt will preserve them. If you have gone through the fire, because you are in Christ, you will be preserved on the other side. That same fire that purges also purifies. Everyone will be tested to see if they are acceptable in worship. Everyone must go through the fire. In the, in the passage in uh, Zechariah, says that those who come out of the fire, they will, they will have communion with their God. He will be their God and they will be their people. An acceptable offering to the living God. We were made to worship. And we are only pleasing to God if we are in Christ. The only thing that can save us from the fire is the blood of the Lamb. And if you have the blood of the Lamb on you, His salt will preserve you. He, as high priest, intercedes for you and holds you close. There's one more important thing of note. This is why the fires of hell are unquenchable. Because they will never be pleasing to God. They will burn and burn and burn and never be purified. The worms will never be satisfied. The maggots will never have their their fill. They are going through the fire but can never be purified, so the fire must rage on. This is why the language is so strong about unquenchable fire. God, God in the flesh, the Son of God, Jesus wants you to know that this is the standard. And if you are not pure with me, there will be burning and burning forever. But he doesn't just leave them there with this challenge. He says salt is good, verse 50. Of course it is. It's always good biblically. Pretty straightforward. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? This is speaking of those who should be salt. You appear to be salt. I hold it in my hand. This looks like salt and this looks like salt. This one is not salty. If salt is not salty, it's good for nothing. Speaking of apostates, those who act like Christians, walk like Christians, talk like Christians, but have no salt, have no fruit. You look like you're a tree, but I don't see any fruit. If they've lost its saltiness, how can you make them salty again? There's nowhere back from this. So my challenge and encouragement here is be salty, my friends. In a positive biblical way, not the way that kids mean it today. Live as one who flavors and preserves everything you touch. Live as one who builds up in love, not tempt and destroy, not corrupt. And what is the result of being salty? What is the result of being the salt of the earth? What is the result of being pure, of, um, purified through the fire? Be at peace with one another. There is no peace any other way. That's why the desire for world peace has been going on and will go on. It is not possible. Apart from the refinement and the union in Christ. This idea seems to come out of nowhere, but if we remember Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it is life and it is peace and and righteousness and the Holy Spirit. If you are in my kingdom right now, Those who are destined, those whose destination is peace will live in peace now. 
If you are destined for peace, you will have peace and be in peace. These two things are so closely linked together. Being at peace is free from the entanglements of sin and free from leading others to sin and freely seasoning everything around you so that you as salt preserves your brother and preserves your sister and keeps them from sin and keeps purity within the body. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He said, they shall be called the sons of God. Coming full circle. If you're a child of God, you will be a peacemaker. You will have peace within you because Christ has made peace for you. And you will be called the sons of God because you are. So two conclusions here. Or two big takeaways in the conclusion. One, the greatest concern is eschatological. If you don't know what that word means, it just means look to the end. The greatest concern is you've got heaven, you've got hell. You've got life with me in my kingdom or you've got burning forever. Where are you going to go? Where do you want to be? That's the greatest concern here. And Jesus, when he says this, he quotes Isaiah 66, the end of Isaiah 66. And again, this will be on the screen because I want to get here quickly. But the end of Isaiah 66, talking about the second coming of the Lord, he will come with fire in verses 15 and 16, and he's going to show his glory to all nations. But at the end of all things, there'll be this great contrast. For as the new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Jesus says there's a place. I'm making a new place. And if you are in me, if you are my offspring, you will remain there forever. I declare it. From new moon to new moon. From Sabbath to Sabbath. That just means on and on. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This is the life that Jesus is talking about. But he directly quotes this verse. And they shall go out, those who have life, and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall not be an abhorrence to all flesh. Jesus is not teaching anything new. He brings in Isaiah. He shows the fulfillment. Believe in me, because it's life with me and new heavens and new earth, or it is unquenchable fire and abhorrence to all flesh. Die to sin, live to Christ, because it is infinitely better. The greatest concern is eschatological. You look all the way forward to the return of Christ and our goal, our finish line. But what about in the immediate? What do we do now? I want to leave you with two passages going from Jesus' two closest disciples, John and Peter. How they grab a hold of this and how they encourage their readers in the first letters that they write to the churches, 1 John 3, 1-11. If you don't know where these are, go to the back of your Bible, a couple books uh, before Revelation. 1 John 3, he addresses the church as little children. Uh, he starts in later in chapter 2, but I want to pick up in verse 1. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Hard period there. If the last 45 minutes or so of this message scared you, it should. But if you are in Christ, read these words and stand on them. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. We don't Avoid sin so that God will be pleased with us. We avoid sin because God is pleased with us. 
And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Same idea with the fire purification here. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. If you say you are in Christ and His whole mission is to get rid of sin, how can you continue in it? No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or knows Him. Little children. John, as an elder, reaching out to the congregation, used the same language Jesus does. Lest no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appears was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on singing because he has been born of God. If there is no conviction when you sin, be very afraid. If you beat yourself up over your sin, good. I'm glad to hear that. Because if God's seed abides in you, you will be miserable. If you have been born of God, you are, you are acting against your new nature, but you are acting in concert with your old nature. Put that old self to death and live in Christ. By this, verse 10, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Oh, I skipped the last half of verse 8, which is important. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to put all this to death. How could we possibly live in it? But this, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Notice, John ends where Jesus did. And be at peace. Unity within the body. The, the, the two markers of you are my disciple. If you keep my commandments and you love one another. This is consistent. I want to end on a high note. First Peter 3. Don't keep on sinning, but also don't be surprised when trials come. I love when, the way Peter sets up trials. Christians, we should have a good answer for trials. And Peter does because he starts with everything we have when we face trials. You don't come to trials empty-handed. You come full. 1 Peter 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here's the salted by fire. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.